The reputation of this area where many of us live, uh, here in the Hills District, the reputation is, is one of comfort. Uh, middle to upper middle class, it's a good area to, to raise a family. There's good schools and there's decent amenities and services. It's safe. And people are generally well off. But I know that even here, even here in the burbs, we aren't immune from grief and loss and tragedy. Life is far from a continuous run of green lights and sunshine, even in sunny Pennant Hills. We have setbacks. We have our conflicts. We have our rainy days. Maybe whole months and seasons and years of metaphorical dark weather where, you know, when things are serious and you have important decisions to make and you're in that critical time of your life, what do you fall back on? Where do you turn? Especially when things get bad. Maybe you're in one of those seasons now and I wonder how you're coping. Uh, Some of you have access to an incredible wealth of personal resources to face those difficult situations. You're you're well-educated, you're highly trained, you've used that know-how to achieve success, and now you have uh, experience, which you can draw on to help you through tough situations. You think well and you act decisively, and that gets you through most things. Uh, Some of you have built character, over the years, and you reap the rewards of that. You're persistent and you're determined and you have a positive mental attitude, all of which helps you navigate through all those really hard seasons in life. And those great personal resources, they can be a great asset to you. Others of you may not consider yourself to be particularly strong, individually speaking, but you are connected. And it's your community and your family and your networks, your friends, the people you have in your life who they give you a a sense of resilience. Because they're there to give you a hand. They're there to pull you up when you've fallen down. You have people there to give you counsel and support and a sense that you're not in this alone. And together with your people in your corner, there is no obstacle you can't ascend. But some of us don't cope. And when things get really hard, we just crumble, honestly. We don't know what to do. We don't have anywhere to go. And despair hits us. We curl up into a ball. We we try a way to find a way to run away from our troubles if we can, or we distract ourselves so we don't have to think about it. I hope it all blows over. Uh, Today we're starting a four-week series over the next month where we're looking at the story of Ruth in the Bible. This is a love story of sorts about this outsider, this this non-Jewish woman who has to find a way forward in Israel after losing her husband of only about 10 years. And I trust and pray that this book is something we can learn from, particularly if you are finding yourself in a season where things are tough. And today, as we start in chapter 1, maybe it's fitting that it is Mother's Day today. Because we're not even focused on 
Ruth, who this book is named after, we're looking at Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi is such a big part of this book, I sometimes wonder why this book isn't named after her. Um, The story begins with her story, Naomi's story. Look at how it begins there in chapter 1, verse 1. And sometimes the first line of a story gives you a clue about how to read it, what to expect. Like uh, if I was reading a story to you and it started like this, once upon a time, there was a beautiful... You know what kind of thing I'm, I'm, I'm telling you? you know, that's a fairy tale. Or if you're sitting these days in the cinema and the opening credits, you see Marvel Studios and that comic book montage flicking through and that theme music coming on. You know you have certain expectations about what a superhero movie is going to be like. How does our story today begin? In the days when the judges ruled. And let me suggest to you that that doesn't just give you a historical time frame to put this story in. You may or may not care that the story is set in the period between 1200 and 1000 BC in the Near East, which is the period when the judges reigned. What's more significant is knowing a bit about what life was like in the time of the judges for your average Israelite. And in short, life was a mess. In that period, the book of Judges is just before this book. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, you look back just half a page. And that final verse of the book of Judges reads like this. Judges 21-25 says this. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. Anything goes. For a period of about 200 years, from the time they first settled in the land up until Israel's first monarchy, the people seemed to be just doing whatever they wanted to do. And it was chaos. And there'll be these wild swings in the graph of Israel's national life in terms of how close they were following God's ways, how, how strong they were as a, as a country compared to the neighboring countries, and even their internal stability. It was up and down. They were just seesawing their way through about 200 years of history. And there were these odd times where things were good, really good where God would raise up a leader called a judge uh, who would rally and lead the people and help them to walk according to God's ways. And in that judge's lifetime, he'd hold it together. Uh, There was one female judge, but mostly there were men. They, they, They held things together, and things would be relatively stable for a time. But as soon as any judge finished their term or when they died, what seems to happen is that the people would scatter again and forget God and go off and do whatever they wanted to do. And so God would let their enemy armies rise up again, and God would smash them. He would let natural disasters afflict the land to get their attention. And so Israel found themselves seesawing their way through those 200 years, sometimes following God's rules and God's ways, but most of the time not. Flip-flopping from generation to generation, drawing near to God when there was a judge, but When there wasn't, they'd slide back into apostasy. And God would hand them over to the enemies again before eventually delivering them. And so you can imagine it's a pretty turbulent time to be an Israelite. And again, here's how Ruth, the book of Ruth, begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So my guess is that Naomi's story begins in one of those 
low points in the periods of the judges where people aren't listening to God and the land's been struck with a famine. And the people are struggling physically. There's no rain, there's no food. But in the Old Testament literature, that also often is symptomatic of people who are spiritually struggling. Yes, there's no rain, there's no food, but it's also often because people have walked away from their God. And so, as we continue reading, a man from Bethlehem, Judah, fasted and prayed and asked God to bring relief. No. No. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live a while in the country of Moab. They're not looking for a spiritual solution. They're looking for a practical solution. There's no food here. We'll go and live over there. This family heads a little bit to the east, to the neighboring country of Moab, because there, at least, there is some food. Uh, Never mind the fact that you're leaving God's promised land, the one that God gave you, and you're heading to settle in the land of an enemy. Uh, At least there's food there. And as Naomi's story unfolds, it turns out that her troubles are only just beginning, because tragedy strikes. The man's name was Limelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephraphites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. I don't know if you can imagine migrating somewhere new, with your family in tow, with the promise of a better life. And when you get there, you lose your spouse. And so you find yourself doing this alone. Not totally alone, you have your two sons who grow up in this new environment and they get married and they settle down. And these sons, uh, they married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Uh, There were specific laws in the Old Covenant that said if you were an Israelite, there were certain people that you weren't meant to marry. You could technically marry a Moabite on a technicality because that nation isn't named in this next reading we're going to have a look at. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, this uh, spelling out of the law, says this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hivites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, no no Melbites there, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when your Lord has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. But Moab was excluded from that list. Technically, it isn't against God's law to marry a Moabite. But you run a similar risk, I think, don't you? Uh, The danger was that you might start following your spouse's religious practices. Even then, the relationship between Israel and Moab wasn't great, historically. So you get later in Deuteronomy uh, laws like this. 
no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and instead they hired Balaam, son of Beor, to pronounce a curse on you. Uh, The relationship between these two nations was rocky at best. And so you get the impression that the most correct Jewish thing to do was not to move to Moab and to marry into that people group. But it seems that Naomi and her sons, they're practical and adaptable kind of people, and they're looking to start a new life in this new country. They begin to lay down some roots, minus dad, who's passed away. And the boys have now grown up in Moab. Uh, They've met a girl. They've settled down. They've gotten married. And after they've been there about 10 years, both Marlon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. It just gets worse and worse for Naomi. You got to feel for this woman who's been bereaved of her children and her husband, and she finds herself on her own in a different country to where she grew up. What is she supposed to do? What would you do? And the sadness of the situation aside, how are they even going to survive? It is not like how it is in Sydney, where women have these opportunities to be financially independent. What, what options are left to her? She's an older woman now, without a husband, without sons, in a foreign land where she has no family. Maybe you just throw in the towel and you give up. Just too hard. It's too much. But then she hears news that the famine in Israel is over. It's likely that in those 10 years she's been away, somewhere in that time a judge has come to power and they're starting to get the people back on track again, back in Israel. Either way, there's food in Israel again. So verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And she's not totally alone, is she? She has these two daughters-in-law with her. These two who are also grieving in their own right because they've just lost their husbands. And you get this picture of three women, this whole family unit that's left in crisis. And Naomi's plan is to go back to Israel. But she knows there's, there's nothing for the girls there. They're foreigners, Moabites of all things, and Israel isn't very kind to Moabites. Who's going to marry a Moabite woman who's been married before? And they're better off going back to their own homes, making the best of the terrible situation that they can, however they can. Maybe they can still scratch a life for themselves back with their parents. Or maybe as a, as a widow in that time, you might be able to marry again. It's going to be tough either way, but in Naomi's mind, maybe Orpah and Ruth are still young enough to maybe find another husband. And so she urges them uh, in verse 8 to go. 
Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your own mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye. But they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now there is some loyalty, huh? How's that for Mother's Day? This woman is determined to stick by her mother-in-law and nobody is going to stop her. If you take what Ruth says there literally in that last speech, she is not even going to let death separate them. She's going to make sure that they even get buried in the same spot so that even then they'll be together. What is in it for her? Maybe Ruth really had nowhere else to go which is why she wouldn't be shaken off. She wanted to stick with her mother-in-law. But I don't think that can be right because Naomi knew Ruth had a family she could go back to, which is where she wanted to send Ruth back to her her mother, like she sent Orpah back to Orpah's mother. Somewhere, Ruth had somewhere she could go in Moab. So maybe they developed such a good relationship through the son, her husband, who's now died, and these two women had grown close because of that. And that could be true, I don't know. We're not told about their relationship other than these actions that Ruth takes. What I suspect is that Ruth didn't want to leave Naomi because if she left Naomi, Naomi would have no one. No one else is going to take care of this older woman if Ruth leaves her alone. And so I think Ruth stays with Naomi out of love and compassion and care. And she's determined to do what she can to look after her bereaved mother-in-law who's already gone through so much. What's in it for Ruth? I don't think she's actually thinking about herself at all. I think the only thing she's thinking about is how she can care for Naomi in all of this, which is incredible. And so off they go, the two of them alone on the road back to Bethlehem, Judah. Verse 19. Uh, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was just beginning. Uh, if you have a Bible with footnotes, they'll explain to you the fuss with the names. Uh, the women of Bethlehem, they didn't expect to ever see Naomi again. It's been at least 10 years. And they're like, hey, look, every, look, everyone, Naomi's back. But she's saying, don't call me Naomi. That The name Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant, I think is what our footnotes tell us. And Naomi says, there's nothing pleasant about my life. Not anymore. No, you call me Mara. And that name means bitter. Because that's how she's feeling. That's, that's her life now. Bitter. And that's a statement. You introduce yourself to someone and you say, hello, my name is Bitter. Because that is my life. Now, speaking of meanings of names, what do you think Ruth means? We've lost that word in English over time. It used to be an English word, it slipped out of usage, and I suspect no one knows it anymore. But we've retained its opposite, ruthless. Um, it's a word we still know and still use. To be Ruth is to be the opposite of ruthless, not harsh, not rough. In Hebrew, the, men, the name means to be a compassionate friend. And I can't help but think that the meaning of that name comes from this character. She defines the word. She's the original, after whom everyone else is named. To be Ruth is to be like her. And most of us don't quite have the same level of symbolism in the names we give to people, especially how we pick names for the, our children. Uh, we think a little bit about what it means. You avoid the really silly ones, but you, often you pick a name that sounds good potentially as it matches with your last name. Or you, you pick a name that depends on whether you know anyone else who's already used that name in your circle of friends. How about Archie? Yeah, that's a good name. <laughs> the closest we get is when we think of nicknames for people uh, that reflect something of their personality or their traits. But in Australia, we even do that ironically because maybe that's a reflection of the sense of humour out here. But, you know, it's an Aussie thing. You call the redhead Bluey. It's just how you do it. I can't help but see there's a bit of irony in what Naomi says about her name that perhaps she doesn't even intend. I get the fact that she's feeling bitter and she's feeling empty. Look at the verse. Uh, 121 says this. Her explanation for why she wanted her name changed is this. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Call me bitter. But what I see is this. I went away, but the Lord has brought me back. Under terrible circumstances, yes. But the Lord has brought her back. And I don't think she would have come back if she hadn't been emptied. 
Some of us are like that, aren't we? We'll only come to God when we have no other options left. Because we want to run our lives our way. And we're capable of doing many, many good things with our lives on our own. And Satan is more than happy to give us opportunities to do things in any other way than God's. I suspect he's cheering when we use our faculties and our resources and our networks to make apparently sensible decisions for ourselves and for our families as long as we don't exercise faith. Go nuts. We don't like it when God closes the doors on us that we've chosen for ourselves. We blame him. Oh, how unfair God is. How terrible of him to mess up our life and our plans and to bring trouble. We don't and we can't see his blessings because we don't have his perspective or his priorities. We want God to get on board with our plans, not caring that he wants, to get, he wants us to get on board with his plans. There's no future for Naomi in Moab, and there never was. In a class of kids, there's always one who pushes the boundaries more than the others. Uh, And it's good to have someone in a class like that because as they get in trouble, as they get snapped and reprimanded, as discipline comes, everyone else learns what the boundaries are. They watch and they learn. What are you learning from Naomi this morning? Think about the direction of your life. Think about where God would have you? Or are you off somewhere in Moab making a life for yourself? Are you walking with God? And what will it take for you to come back? Amen.